Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a journey of faith, doubt, and how that impacts us in our ministries. Let's do this. Hey, how's it going? Thank you guys so much for joining us today on this episode. As always, Shu is here. Shu, what's up? Yo, yo. Yes. And we have a very special guest, pastor and author. Austin Fisher is here. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Thank you all for coming down to uh, Texas to Texas. visit Texas. So I do have to ask, is this the most holiest place in all of U.S.? Because it's Temple, Texas, right? Temple, who names a place called Temple? That's awesome. The audacity. The audacity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. And it just must be just full of holy people. Just always. With you two here, yeah. Oh, wow. It really increased that's, our holiness saturation. That's very kind. That's very kind. We bring the peace from Canada. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we got Fort Hood right over here. So that's, that's good. Balances out. Oh, man. Good times. So just jumping right into it. You know, both of your books, while they are theological in nature, they were deeply personal, and they outlined a journey that you were on and that you have been on for the last several years as you wrestled through traditions, convictions, doubts, and even periods of darkness, and what that has meant for you as a Christ follower and as a pastor. And for those of our listeners who have not had a chance to read your books, could you briefly outline a little bit about what that journey was like? Sure. There's a theologian, his last name was McClendon. Anyways, he just had this phrase where he said, all theology is essentially biography, by which he meant theology is ultimately the result of us you know, trying to make sense of our lives and what it looks like to live a life of faithfulness to Christ in the midst of you know, the life of Austin Fisher. Hmm. Um, and so for me, like I love the highbrow theology. It's fun. But when we do theology, again, we do so in the context of like an actual life with actual loves and struggles and experiences. And so I've always found that it's better— to explain theology in the context of what it looks like for a human to try to follow Christ faithfully and things that happen right. make you rethink things. Because in numerous different fields tell us this now, that we're not nearly as rational as we like to think we are. <laughs> okay. You know, but, but, but rather than walking through the world, you know, sorting through things with logical syllogisms, uh, we live from the gut in this deep kind of primal world where we just have certain intuitions about certain things that come to us in a variety of different ways. And so to get to that level and go like, why is it that I am drawn to certain theologies or to certain people? Because it's not just an intellectual thing. Mm -hmm. John Piper, who you know I, I no longer agree with quite so much, but I still respect, <laughs> he's got a great line where he says, people will not buy into your theology unless it makes their heart sink. Mm. And so what Piper's getting at there, obviously, is um, what draws us to a theology is not just that it makes great rational arguments, though that's very important, but that there's something in it that we find beautiful. Right. And desirable. Yeah. And so both of my, my books are really an attempt to explain what it looked like for me to work out a theology that is faithful to the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. obviously scripture being a part of that, but also beautiful and, and made a good sense of what it means to live a, a true, good, and beautiful human life. Right. I'm getting more specific, but that's the, that's the big narrative in both yeah. the books. Along that lines, I, I just want to say thank you because I think you were one of the influences in my life reading your material and reading your books. 
in which it gave kind of a freedom to be able to start talking and exploring faith in new ways while still being faithful to scripture, mm-hmm. to Christ, and seeing how you kind of started interpreting and understanding scripture through the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. It was one of those first examples that I was like, whoa, it's not just about taking the Bible and just trying to prove a point and just to forming a theology about it, but actually it's like, oh, how did Christ live that out? And how do we understand God in the life and the work and the ways of Jesus? And how does that form our greater theology yeah. in with that? And so thank you so much. Yeah, for absolutely. That. It's a high yeah. compliment. Yeah, he makes it sound so nice. For me, it was more just reading your Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed. That was like... I, I, Which is a great title, because you also you uh, talk about black holes and everything. I, I, was, like, I was so yeah. proud when I thought of that metaphor. That's great. That fantastic. <laughs> Piper did not like that metaphor. He did not like that I picked on Jonathan Edwards. Oh, But to be fair, oh, man. Edwards had it coming. Uh, was that? He's like an American like, He's great. legend. I love, it. I love Edwards and um, the late Robert Jensen. I don't know if you have read any Jensen stuff. He was a Lutheran theologian who died recently. But, um, man, just world-class, world-class thinker. Jensen wrote a lot about Edwards and has done a lot to, like, rehabilitate some of Edwards' stuff. And he makes a great case for Edwards as a, a theologian who has man, a, a really important place for beauty in his theology. Now, I would just disagree with Edwards as to whether or not Edwards' is God is— truly beautiful, but Edwards understood that it was important. Right. That God be beautiful. And Piper Channel is a lot of Edwards, yeah. of course. Oh, it's definitely yeah, Piper that's from. Yeah. I, I think the title of your first book, Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed, it did hit a chord. And I think with Reformed theology, especially in our context from the Canadian-Asian context, where it is so embedded, and that is the traditions we have adopted— it really poked at something that we're like, what? We, we, can, we can kind of like be in it, but not in it, but like, or maybe even go exit out of it. So, Because I think one of the things in, in our, at least the way that we observe our Canadian context, a lot of our, let's just say the Canadian, Asian or immigrant church in general, it's not as much theologically formed at times, but more theologically assumed. Yeah. Our denominations don't matter as much, but our cultural or our Chinese church, our Korean churches takes the the bigger spotlight. And I think what people do take theologically, whether they realize it or not, is mostly the popular level mm-hmm. uh, reading material. So, yeah. which is a lot of John Piper, Tim mm-hmm. Keller, like Gospel Coalition. There's a lot of that's influence in yeah. in that area, definitely. Yeah. So, well, and again, I think a lot of them we were talking about before the interview. What Gospel Coalition has done well is provide a solid theological structure, even if I disagree with a lot of it, for churches that are either interdenominational or don't have that like solid theological framework coming into it, but instead find themselves in the middle of church, kind of midstream, and then you're kind of just grabbing for anything that will give you that structure, that mm. certainty, that clarity. Mm-hmm. And Gospel Coalition does a good job of that, yeah. whether mm. or not you agree or disagree with some of the theology. Yeah. And, you know, structure and stability are highly valued. Uh, among, to the immigrant. To, especially yeah. to the immigrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. to the immigrant who has come and there has been not, no stability. Yeah. And perhaps some of that you know, desire and value they were hoping for in the church and having, in a sense, certainty yeah. about your theology yeah. gave a sense of stability and you know, we can understand the appeal of it. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I think that's very perceptive. 
Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where I think as we've continued to you know be in this conversation in the Canadian Asian context, we've seen more and more things unpack, and we're like, where did that come from? How did things get you know to this point? Which has been really interesting, like with Shu, like him having his kind of journey too of going to different seminaries and learning from kind of different traditions, and for him to kind of land where he's landed. You know, you were at landing, landing, <laughs> still landing. He's circling the runway. Yeah, but. Not, yeah so, <laughs> that's right. And maybe, but maybe that's kind of where actually God meets us yeah. as we are continuing to figure it out. And none of us can just say like, "Oh, we have figured out God." Oh man, right? And yeah. that's why, like, most of the the most brilliant people I know are all incredibly humble, and it's mm-hmm. not fake because the more you know the more you realize you don't know. Mm. And so like truly the, the smartest people I know, they are humble and it is natural for them. It's, a na- it's the most natural thing imaginable because they know enough to know how much they don't. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> no. And that's why even, you know, like you get some of the Keller Piper acolytes. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're usually much more aggressive than in particular Keller is. You know, Keller's very measured and gentle and he's got firm opinions, but man, he's a very humble man sure. because he's very smart. You, you've got people who popularizing his work, though, who, I mean, quite frankly, just aren't as, as well-read as he is. And they tend to be more arrogant and sure of themselves mm. because they're not as well-educated as someone like a Keller is. Mm. And that leads to all sorts of different <laughs> issues that can come up for sure. And so, you know, one of the things we did want to talk to you a little bit about is, is where, for you, you've been wrestling through these last few years in terms of your theology a little bit. Yeah, I, I was interested in you know, hearing, uh, reading some of your material and hearing some of the podcast interviews you've been on that most, most people will think, oh, I have a, a Calvinist framework that I'm working through or an Arminian. And then for you, yours is more of a classical theist position. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying. Could you yeah. maybe explain a bit more to people what sure. that position would be? Man, so when I, I knew I, I could no longer sign up, you know, for Calvinism, and I just have a very, like, it's important for me to have, like, integrity in my beliefs. Mm. And so when I realized, in my opinion, the only way to be a consistent Calvinist is, is, is to sign up for all of it, you know, mm-hmm. double predestination, you name it, don't wimp out, don't get passive <laughs> in your language about reprobation, like, bite the bullet. And again, all the best, most articulate Calvinists do that. Calvin was very clear on it. Edwards was very clear on it. Piper's very clear on it. And so once I realized that, like, it was all or nothing when it came to Calvinism, I realized I had some pretty serious problems and mm-hmm. couldn't be a Calvinist anymore. And so that began, like, a journey away from it. And the first stop out of that, yeah, typically would be Arminianism. Yep. And so the way I like to explain it is classical theism is probably best described as, as, as having some place for, like, real genuine free will. Like, that's what you tend to see in the fathers. Now, they don't have it completely worked out yet, like, but there's some real place for free will. There's a deep resistance to anything like double predestination in the fathers. You start to see it in Augustine late in his career. And so classical theism holds to like kind of the transcendental virtues. God is omniscient, omnipresent, all those things. So not open theism or process theology. Mm-hmm. Arminianism is a later expression of classical theism that came about in the context of you know an interaction, especially among Calvinists, about the place for works and whether or not one could lose one's salvation, et cetera. And so it's not that I'm like not Armenian mm-hmm. necessarily. It's just it, it's not the most helpful label in my opinion because I think that I'm reaching back to something that has its roots in the fathers 
sure. not in 16th, 17th century debates about soteriology, which is what a lot of those are about. And those just aren't particularly interesting to me like, anymore. <laughs> yeah. The monergism, synergism, I don't, man, it's just yeah. so uninteresting to me, all those debates. <laughs> and so that's why I prefer that term, because I think it, it ties it back to something that's much more ancient. Sure. Certainly more ancient than Augustinianism, even. And then I was tempted, as most people are, by like up in theism. I love Greg Boyd. I mean, Greg mm. so mm. graciously endorsed my first book, was really awesome to me. Like, I love Greg Boyd. I love Greg Boyd's work, his stuff on nonviolence. Like, he's unmatched, man. He's just, right. he's one of the most honest theologians I have ever been around, Greg is. I ended up, though, just not being able to go the open theist route. Like, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate. You can make a great argument for it. But was more persuaded by people like David Bentley Hart. I don't know if you've read any of Hart's stuff. His his new book on universalism yeah, is called Quite the Stir. But yeah. this was way before that. <laughs> okay, way sure, before that. Sure. He he had me kind of come around and get on some of the classical notions of impassibility that have become no longer fashionable. And there are questions there, but I just ended up going, you know what? I think classical theism achieves mostly everything open theism wants to do, but better. And so ended up landing, you know, in what I think is just classical Orthodox Christian theism. No, I just, because I haven't heard anyone particular in in circles that I've read that that espoused to more classical theism just in general, which Mm -hmm. I guess is more of like that, I, you know, like you're saying, I'm going to take that more broad approach. So I'm not just saying I'm an Armenian in in that position, Mm -hmm. but the same thing. Yeah, I can, I can understand if. But yeah, actually, I don't understand. I probably have to look more deeply into it because even when I'm looking more deeply into classical theism, I'm like, oh, this is interesting as mm-hmm. a as a position and how the church fathers like were looking at that position. Yeah, well, it, almost thinking of theology, and this comes from like Catherine Tanner. Her stuff's impossible to follow, but like the 15 percent <laughs> of it, I do understand. <laughs> you know, she talks a lot about how theology, and, and Stanley Howard does this too. Like, it's it's figuring out how to speak correctly about God. Mm-hmm. And what are the rules we play by? What's the grammar to speak properly of God? And so what we see, especially in the fathers, is, is their attempt to say, like, hey, are we allowed to say this about God or, or are we not? Are we allowed to say that about God? No, are we not? And what I think they kind of mark out there, and again, you see this obviously with like the doctrines of the Trinity and the humanity and divinity of Christ. I think you see them, though, mark out this territory where it's like the things that double predestination has to say about God we're not allowed to say those things about God, hmm. is what I, I, my interpretation of what we see the first few centuries of Christian theology kind of sketching out. And so that's what I'm saying is like, there's a lot that I don't know. What I know is, um, what I think is, some of the language used by the more extreme forms of Reformed theology are, in my opinion, out of bounds yeah, okay. for what Christians can say about God. Hmm. I am... On that page. (laughs) I would say that we're pretty much all on that page. Just as a personal question, was any part of this whole journey that you were on scary for you? And if if it was, what what do you think was the scariest parts? Oh, man. I mean, you got to, yeah, so a little bit of background. Um, I I really didn't take my faith very seriously growing up. My my father had a very negative experience with church growing up. Mm -hmm. So we didn't go to church a lot. When I did, it was a social sort of deal. Sure. So when I started taking my faith seriously when I was in high school, it was because this guy reached out to me, discipled me, like took an interest in me. Right. And this guy, and he's still one of my best friends, uh, he was a hardcore Calvinist. Yeah. <laughs> and so I cut my teeth. I mean, the first like real 
Christian book I read was Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. I mean, I read <laughs> everything Piper had, you know, by the time I was 18 years old. I could not get enough of it. And so it by was... By the time you were 18? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, man. I love it. And again, I, I didn't, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand a lot of it. But man, I just couldn't get enough of it. Sure. You know, again, it was like someone had kicked open a door in my mind. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, like this is good, like high level, a different kind of theology than what I was used to. Right. So all that to say, the only kind of serious, like robust Christianity that I had ever known was Calvinist. And so when I realized I couldn't with integrity, like stay within Calvinism, Mm -hmm. I I felt like I was walking away from Christianity. Right. That's what it felt like to me, you know? And I was going, well, I mean, I can't, I can't stay here. I just can't do it with any integrity. I know right. I can't sign up for these things. But I have no clue where that leads me. Right. And so, it, no, it was absolutely terrifying, dude. I didn't feel like I was walking away from Calvinism. I, I felt like I was you know, walking away from Christianity as right. I knew it, and I didn't know what a new home would look like. Sure. I felt homeless. Wow. That's that quite is, the analogy. <laughs> and, you know, what you said was, like, that could seem so nerve-wracking because you— you're not thinking that you're walking away from Calvinism. You're no. thinking of walking away from Jesus. Yeah. And that's... I thought that was the choice. I was yeah. yeah. See, the interesting thing is that... I, so when I... I went to study at a more conservative seminary in the States. <laughs> I had the reverse reaction a little... Well, not the reverse. I, a similar, but, you know, a different reaction that... I came from a, a more Canadian Baptist kind of side of, of... More just general, like I assumed theology never really thought about anything... And I went to that that seminary, and then it, my whole framework collapsed. That I was like, I I didn't believe the right thing. It's like I, I they were telling me all of the the polemics against what I was believing and what other more liberal seminaries telling me believe. You don't don't go for those things. This is how you should see your faith. Yeah. And it was a a Calvinist framework. Yeah. Mm. And then I my whole like kind of I, I I remember calling my father, and going I was crying. Yeah. I was like I don't know if I can. If, if, if this is the right thing, and I, I, it's like for the whole time, I feel like this is now they are saying this is the only right way to go. My dad, I remember just kind of like, he just told me, you know what, shoot, you, you cannot, like anyone who says they, they have the right and they have the only way, you have to check that. Yeah. You have to. Some wise words. Yeah. And I, I, and he calmed me down and I yeah. just remember I was just like freaking out because I thought. But it's oh. hard. All these authority figures are telling you, No. It's this, or you're a heretic. <laughs> and you're probably, what, tw- 23 years old trying to process all that? I mean, that's a <laughs> tricky, it's a tough spot to be in. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Messed up. <laughs> you know, that's almost the, the, the major fear is that like, oh, if I doubt or if I question what is being presented to me, that it's like apostasy mm-hmm. or heresy. And like, no one likes to be told that <laughs> or yeah. to feel that way. And yeah, like to hear your story about like, you know, that it was scary. It's terrifying. Like, oh, yeah. man, that, that hits home for sure. That hits home for sure. One of the big pushes for us in doing this podcast has always been trying to engage in the conversation and to try to find middle ground for people to have conversation and to wrestle through things together. And for us, it may not always be about theological issues. It might just be even just generational issues mm-hmm. and such like that. Even differences with theology or ecclesiology or even understanding of what the mission of God is. But there is, yeah, there is tension in the conversation within the Canadian Asian context as well. 
But one of the things I've always appreciated, and I think you did write it in your first book, was that you did desire, you wished that there was a middle ground, that there wasn't this almost antagonistic relationship between, you know, people of different traditions and such. And you had written, like, you had wished that there was a middle ground, but where would it be? Mm -hmm. And in the years of you having written your first book, have you seen any answers to that question? <laughs> oh, so I think, like how in how, the context yeah. of my first book, that that middle ground we're talking about is between like Calvinism, yeah. and some sort of iteration of tribalism. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what Molinism has tried to remedy—the kind of middle knowledge route. I don't buy it at all. William but that's, there's been an attempt, yeah, to do that. I, I don't buy it. Um, so no, so that's I, I not think, the way. That's not the way. I don't think that's the middle ground route, man. The majority of, of scholars would agree on that. Not, I'm not saying I'm a scholar. The majority of real scholars would agree on that. I, I think the middle ground is not like a, a mediating theological position. Okay. So much as it is a willingness to commit charitably to people that we disagree with. Mm. You know, so I, there's not going to be a man. There is no people keep you know, open theism. It's not middle ground. Uh, there's no middle ground on this thing. Like we're just going to disagree on it. But can we disagree and still? Worship together, right? Serve together and evangelize together. Right. So, like in my church, you know, you guys know this. Our other lead pastor, we have two lead pastors, is a Calvinist. Sure, now he's a uh, as good as they come when it when it comes to Calvinists. Now, I don't think he's very consistent, and I mess with him about that all the time. Oh man! <laughs> but he's he's a good Calvinist, and so like we literally try to live this out in our church. You know, and people have always asked us, like, how in the world do you have someone who's a Calvinist? And someone who is very vocally not a Calvinist, right? Like sharing the same pulpit, right? I say, well, leading the it's same pretty church. tricky. Yeah, he gets up on a Sunday and he preaches, and then I get up on the next Sunday and I preach, and then he preaches, and then I preach, and that really is that. That's literally what we do, right? right? So, in other words, it's not near as complicated as we like to pretend like it is. Like it's, you just do it, and it works. And our people are not stupid; like they understand that there's a conversation. That has been going on for thousands of years, you know, back into the, the Hebrew scriptures, this conversation is going on. And it's a tension that we live in with as a family, right? Mm. So it's an in-house family tension. So, you know, when, when Dave, whatever, preaches Romans 9, he's going to preach it as a Calvinist. When I preach Romans 9, I'm not going to preach it as a Calvinist. I'm going right. to preach it from the correct classical theist perspective. <laughs> uh, which is very clearly not Calvinist. So, uh, and so, and again, our people, you know, think of it this way. If, if the church fathers saw fit, the church saw fit to allow James and Paul to both be in the canon, then two people who disagree with each other about this can lead the same church. Like, there's something about that tension, if done the right way, that can make music. You know, think about like a guitar string or violin. If the tension's right, it makes a beautiful sound. Now, if it's wrong, it's not great. Right. But it is an opportunity to make some really beautiful music if you get that tension right. Hey, you're talking to musicians too, so yes. har harmony, dissonance 100%. can even yeah. be Absolutely. A, a good thing. Absolutely. Yes. How do you feel the journey you've been on has given you insight to shepherd and to minister to, to a congregation that has, you know, different histories and different backgrounds and, yeah. you know, different theological convictions when they come? Because as a church, you guys have chosen to be a non-denominational church. And as two lead pastors, you guys come come from two different traditions and convictions and such like that. So the journey that you've been on, how has it helped you to be able to walk alongside yeah, others? That's a great question. Um, I hope it has made me 
obviously more humble, but even more so just like more charitable towards what's good in other traditions. Like Mm. instead of, and I'm not naturally like this, I'm a very critical person naturally. So when I see a tradition, I instantly go to, well, this long list of things I disagree with. (laughs) Instead of going, man, you know what? Like, of course, I'm not going to agree with everything about this. But this tradition, like my wife grew up Episcopal, and there are things I don't agree with in the Episcopal tradition. But I also look at ways my wife was formed for a life of service and the good of the other and common good in society and the beauty of a fixed liturgy, like all those things. And I can affirm all that and go, man, those are wonderful things that I want to bring those things into. And that enriches like my experience as a Christian. Um, And so I think that's, that's a lot of it. Like if you can get to a place where you realize that we're a family here, and nobody's walking away from each other. Like, you're both married. And you know that, like, when you both know you're all in and you said the vows, that creates a space for, like, the healthy kinds of disagreements to happen because you know, like, you're good and nobody's going anywhere. Mm. And so once you've got that confidence and security, it gives you room to, again, look for, like, good things mm. in other traditions instead of being critical in an attempt to like justify yourself, because that's what it usually is. When you're insecure in yourself and your own theology, then you get critical about others. But when you're secure in it, then you've got plenty of room to go. Mm. Of course I've got stuff to learn from Episcopals, Presbyterians, and you name it, man. Why would I deny that? Yeah. I think that's a lot of maturity, <laughs> what you just said. Well, I don't really do any of it, but it's, <laughs> oh. it's a good theory. Sure, sure. But, it, but it's because in the, in, in quote-unquote, real life. So many of our experiences is just that antagonism. And yeah. it's and to be in a situation where you can humble yourselves enough to work together, to go like, okay, we may disagree on some of these things theologically, but out of the realms of this orthodoxy, we're gonna work. Yeah. yeah. And but it's harder when you're in a denomination. You're yeah. like, no, you cannot go, <laughs> go that yeah. far. Well and that's what's sad and yeah, like denominations that have become so rigid that there's not that space for a healthy kind of disagreement. I mean, we were talking this past Sunday about how in Jesus's high priestly prayer, you know, he prays that the Trinitarian love and unity would be manifested and displayed in the community of disciples. And two different times he says, so that the world might believe that God sent me. Mm. So obviously here's Jesus saying that Christian disunity and divisiveness makes it almost impossible for the world to believe. There's a Catholic theologian, Gerhard Lofink. He's a little bit older, yeah. but great. Oh, he's so, man, he, hmm. he has a phrase where he just says, like, look, nobody's ever seen God. Nobody can see God. All people can see is the church. And if the church is no longer one but divided, then the world can only faintly behold the mystery of Christ because the mirror has been shattered. The disunity of the people of God makes it almost impossible for the world to believe. Sure. That's true. And, and that definitely hits a question we were going to ask because is there a difference in how you approach living life missionally compared to a, a Calvinist brother, sister, or whatnot? And that's definitely one of the things that in your unity, even in certain disagreements theologically, we're, we're for Jesus. We're for the gospel, yeah. the purveyance of, of this Messiah King. Like, yeah. So I would just want to make a distinction between, um, it's not a, a Calvinist thing necessarily, so much as it's like a fundamentalist thing would probably be the distinction okay. I would want to make. So yeah. fundamentalism, the way I define it, is it's not like a set of beliefs so much as it is a way of believing. You know, it's more spirit than it is form. So fundamentalism is a a spirit, a a theological attitude fixated on certainty, very rigid, typically not super charitable. 
you know. Mm. And so fundamentalism can infect any tradition, conservative, mm. progressive, I mean, you name it, it is at home in any tradition and it can manifest its spirit. Sure. And so I, I think that's the distinction I'd want to make is that um, certainly fundamentalist modes of theology are incredibly divisive and have been present in Christianity from the very beginning. We keep finding things to divide over. You know, I'm with Peter. I'm with Paul. I like Apollos. <laughs> you name it. You know? and, and that's what is so devastating in Christian mission. Now, I, I do think that modern American Calvinism is particularly susceptible to the fundamentalist spirit, but they're not alone in that. Sure. They're not alone in that. And the best Calvinists are not, and I do mean that. <laughs> I, no and I, agree, I agree with that. 100%. We have Calvinist friends who, yeah, people who lean towards that, yeah. and they're not going like shove it in your face yeah. like you right. guys are wrong or what. No, we're, I'm going to walk this person and disciple them and just not just try to be rigid about certain things, but point them to Jesus. Yeah. And sure. love, we love our brothers and sisters who like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like the main goal is that we can walk toward Jesus together. And there's that covenant. And it's, it's, it's almost taking a relational approach rather than being positional, rather than being about like who's right or wrong, but like, no, let's go toward Jesus together mm-hmm. and let's covenant to, to do that together and let him work in our life. And, and, you know, as you were describing earlier about, you know, the world sees Jesus through the church, right? And, and just made me think of, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the body, right? And if the body is so, so divisive and infighting and, and split over all these things, what are people going to see when they yeah. look at the church? 100%. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that is a big challenge for all of us um, to think about, like, how does that look like in life and practice in our churches and in our ministries as well? Well, in that, in First Corinthians 12 there, Paul basically says, hey, God intentionally made us all different so that we would need each other. Mm. You know, like, no, everybody's got a different gift. There's noses, ears, like you name it. Because God didn't want to give everybody everything, because if somebody had everything, they wouldn't need anybody. So our differences are meant to be a source of unity and codependence, but instead they become sources of divisiveness, because instead of going, hey, you're an I, I'm really glad you're an I, I could use an I, <laughs> I go, why are you not an ear like me? Like, how dare you not be an ear right. like me? Don't you know that it's better to be an ear than an I? And so we invert, literally, you know, um, God's design for difference in the church. Yeah. Well, we, we didn't get into too much about doubt. And you, you said this in your book, people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People yeah. abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. Yeah. So how do you help people feel like, like, at least in your context, how are they allowed to doubt? One of the things we try to do is normalize doubt without making like an exhibition of doubt. So by normalizing doubt, I just mean this isn't some kind of, you know, fashionable postmodern thing to do is to doubt. This goes. As far back in Scripture, Scripture goes. You've got God telling people things and people going, yeah, you know, I don't know. Like, are we sure? One of my favorite stories I tell in the book is um, in Matthew 28, the apostles, they go up to this mountain in Galilee. They experience the resurrected yeah. Christ, the resurrected Christ. And we're told they saw him and they worshiped him, but some still doubted. Now, and there, there's some interesting, like, things going on there in the Greek. It's probably better Translated, they saw him and they worshipped him, but they still doubted. As in, it's not like 
most people are worshiping, but one person's doubting. <laughs> Cough, Thomas. Um, but, but rather, it's that he they, gets a bad rap. They all worship, even though they all are uncertain. Is, is uh, I think probably the better sense of it. And so, man, I mean, I know, like we've all probably have doubts, and you think to yourself, if I could just see the resurrected Jesus, I'd be good. I wouldn't anything else for the rest of my life. And yet, Scripture itself tells us that people saw the resurrected Jesus, and somehow I, I don't know how to make sense of that story, but somehow they still doubted. And so doubt is a normal thing. It doesn't mean you're losing your faith. A lot of times it means you're expressing your faith, not that you're losing your faith. You know? Yeah. And again, it's not just some sort of fashionable postmodern thing. It can become that. It can become indulgent and lazy, but it doesn't have to be. Right? And so that's the normalizing piece. The not becoming indulgent with it is just the, hey, your doubts are good, um, but make sure you have like the discipline to really follow them through and, and voice them. You know, like Don't just let them eat you up on the inside and don't get caught in that kind of Charles Taylor. Uh, he wrote a secular age, Canadian yeah, philosopher, yeah, Charles yeah. Taylor, oh, Canada's finest. Oh. <laughs> I love Charles Taylor. We're going through We're some, reading, of his, uh, some of his stuff because of uh, Andrew, Andrew Root. Root. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He yeah. wrote uh, Pastor and Secular. Sec- yeah, that's right. Secular age is one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. Anyways, he just does a really good job talking about like the conditions of belief in the modern world and how for various reasons we just experience a world that is filled with God's absence, whereas ancient people experienced a world that was filled with God or the God's presence. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a rational thing. It's like deep in our bones. It is a mood. It is a temperature. It's a climate. And Taylor just does a really good job talking about why skepticism is a more default mood and attitude and intuition in the modern world. And so acknowledging that while also not giving people like the out to be lazy with it and just go, well, yeah. you know, I don't know. So how could I ever do anything? Like, well, I mean, it is possible, though, I can assure you. And you don't <laughs> want to be caught living in limbo for the rest of your life. Man. Sure. It's not a good way to live. And connected to Matthew 28 with the Great Commission is like there's this call to discipleship. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. my very <laughs> presence will be with you to the end of the age. And that would we continue Along that line, even with people who are uncertain, yep. who have that doubt, and well, I'll walk with you even in my doubt, my uncertainties, and we're going at it together. I love yeah. that. I yeah. love that. In fact, it, it is sometimes, in my experience, when people you know just sit around in a coffee shop and think about their doubts, you know, and read Kierkegaard, or something, <laughs> or existential. Is that what people do in Texas? Because no, they're, no. do, they're doing I, Peterson I, right now. That's that's. <laughs> <what they're doing. laughs> You're talking Jordan Peterson. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Interesting fellow. Right. Another topic for another day. Yeah. He's Canadian too, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. He's University of Toronto. Interesting oh, fellow. Man. Interesting fellow. Anyways, no, there, there is absolutely something to um, not just sitting around and staring, you know, at the belly button of your doubts all day long, but finding a way to get out in the world, knowing that you can still follow Jesus faithfully if you have doubts, right? And so right, that's what yeah. I always try to push people toward. Of course you have doubts. You will always have doubts. If the apostles had doubts, you will have doubts. That doesn't prohibit you from Christian faithfulness. You don't have to choose between Jesus and your doubts. Right. The church is literally built on people who lived that contradiction. To your point, Matthew 28. They had their doubts. They still went out and fulfilled the Great Commission. Yeah. I love how you linked it to faith. Like perhaps to have doubts is to be living out faithfully, right? Oh, yeah. Because we're asking God to meet us in, that, in those places and in, in, in that season of life or whatever yeah. it is. And doubts, you know, doubts lead us to questions, and questions can lead us to a greater imagination. Mm-hmm. And maybe God is working in the doubts, the questions, in in 
inspiring us. The Holy Spirit is inspiring us to be like, okay, there is something more. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you talk about Charles Taylor too, and and talk a little bit about, you know, how he how he writes up to you know the secular age, the age of authenticity, mm-hmm. the desire for something more, the yeah. desire for something that is greater, purpose, whatever, and what does it mean to be true to oneself? And you know, I think it is through being able to normalize what you said. Mm-hmm. Those you know to be okay to have those doubts it really can produce perhaps a new expression and a new way of experiencing God. Yep. Yeah. So as we wrap up our conversation today, is there a final thought for how your journey and how your experiences have led you to be able to enter into conversations or invite people into conversations who may be divisive or maybe coming at you, you know, from a, like a very firm position. Yeah. You know, what encouragement would you have for us as we kind of wrap up our time? Man. So when the first book came out, I mean, I was 20, 27 years old, you know, and I just wasn't ready. <laughs> and man, it was, it was difficult. 27. You know? And I struggled wow. to like respond. I look back at some of my responses and, and wish I had them to do over, you know? Mm. And so like what, what I've you know, learned or hope I've learned is that, yeah, this, this unity and disagreement, it's going to be there on a number of different issues. And I really can't control like the other end of a relationship, but I can control whether or not I always, A, interpret people as charitably as possible. Mm. Right? Instead of nitpicking, well, you know, and finding little things that could have meant that and microaggressions and you name it, instead of that, just going, man, this person is probably like passionate about this because they care. And I, and I, I like passionate people. It, it's sure. easier to put a bridle on someone than it is light a fire in their butt. That's what one of my <laughs> elders likes to tell me about my oldest son, who's very difficult. <laughs> um, it's all coming out on yeah, this conversation. Here comes. And so like to just know that it, it usually comes from like a good place, you know, that spiritual passion that leads to some of these disagreements. Sure. And so to know on my end, like I'm going to be as charitable and hospitable as possible because— I don't have anything to prove here. I don't have anything to earn. I don't have anybody to impress. Mm. And when that, now again, that's not always true of me. I know it should be true of me. But like when I'm truly grounded in that, you know, in the Father's basically uh, proclamation of belovedness on Jesus, this is my beloved son. In him I am very well pleased. Mm. When I go out every day grounded in that, then all of a sudden uh, an argument isn't like a, you know, life or death battle for turf (laughs) or this or that. It's a... you know, it's a chance to learn from somebody else and maybe a chance to help somebody else learn. But when you're not like secure in who Jesus has said you are and you feel like you have stuff to prove, it, it comes out in your arguments and you get divisive and nasty and petty because you're, you're trying to prove yourself. Man, that is such a good word. It's like our security is in who God says we are and who we are in Christ rather than in our specific theology and tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that is something really to chew on and to work through. Anyways, thank you so much, Austin, for yeah. your time and yes. for just sharing some of those insights. And I think it's, it's a lot for us to continue to work through. And uh, we really appreciate your writing and for your ministry as well. Absolutely. You guys are welcome in Texas anytime. Oh, I speak on behalf of Texas. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'll naturalize you. Whenever you want. <laughs> As the official <laughs> as the official representative of Texas, there it is. There's the invitation. Anyways, thank you so much. You're very welcome. 
Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening to us today. Hopefully, this conversation has stirred up some interesting questions for you. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, email, or by Twitter. And if you have any thoughts, you know, let us know. We'd love to continue to dialogue with you on that. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're on. That helps continue to help us get this conversation out there and to invite more people into it. And once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time. Peace.